0: Hey crew, this is Mark Hattenmaker coming to you from the Comancheria. Hey, today let's talk about some knife fighting. Let's talk about tomahawk fighting. Let's uh, talk beyond the edge. Let's get into some historical weeds and make sure we get our heads on straight about uh, this fascinating arena. Now, usually when one thinks of knife fighting or tomahawk fighting, usually the mind drifts to, uh, like, a facsimile of a tit-for-tat uh, sword adaptation or cobbled-together sets purporting to be well, this is, gather around, this is how it's done, man. Uh, well, this kind of, sort of, but not really fencing misses the mark by far. Usually this is a add-on template uh, from uh, later times. Um, Uh, This thinking is the weapon before the horse territory. By that, I mean we often become weapon-focused. We tunnel on the implement and often fail to see that in the beginning of man's adoption uh, of any – tool there was an intent problem to be solved and the tool was developed to resolve this uh, problem or exercise this intent okay if that sounds like you, stay with me here that is uh there was more along. The, i need to accomplish so and so task how can i effectively do this with what is at hand you know hence you know whether we're going from stone age uh implements uh you know then we gradually move forward to the wonderful tool things we see today on blade masters or some other uh, reality show Uh, Like I said, right now, often, though, we think we have this tool in hand, and we grab the the coolest, greatest thing ever, whether it's a, a blade, a tomahawk, or any other weapon, and we start thinking, well, I can do this with it, I can do that with it, I can flip it around this way, I can do this and end up in this endless drum majorette iterations of things, which is closer to choreography than actual tool use. For example, if I grabbed a, a carpenter's hammer, or let's say we'll use a framing hammer and, uh, uh, or a, finish, a finishing hammer. It doesn't matter. Well, it does, if depending on what, what kind of work you're going at. But I wouldn't want to flip this around and say, oh, I could do this with it. I could hit to the end with it. I could use the shaft with it and, and name all these iterations and come up different ways. It actually comes down to going, no, there's a few things you're supposed to do just really damn well with it, and you don't need to be flipping this thing around and having all these tit-for-tat iterations with it, just find how to work it most effectively, get their firstest and bestus with the mostest. And after that, the carpenter's really looking at the wood, the grain of the wood, and what kind of wood are we working on? What's the angle we're working at here? It's really what's beyond this hammer, beyond this edge. Let's give the planes uh, a knife-fighting example of beyond the edge. Uh, we're going to now look to an eyewitness account of a Lakota buffalo hunt as witnessed by uh, Francis Parkman uh, during his tour uh, across the plains. Again, whenever we're talking, we're, we're fortunate to have Francis uh, Parkman's workstation extent because we had a wonderful historian but also a guy who lived at that time and actually made these tours so he's just not going back and writing of you know years distant and going you know this is where we what i found and researched this guy was in it Now, be advised, the extract is of its time, and his use of descriptors is no longer palatable, but, no, he's calling it like he saw it. Quote, Many of the Indians rode at full gallop toward the spot, and we followed at a more moderate pace, and soon uh, saw the buffalo lying dead on the side of the hill. The Indians were gathered around him, and several knives were already at work. These little instruments were plied with such wonderful address that the twisted sinews were cut apart. The ponderous bones fell asunder as if by magic, and in a moment the vast carcass was reduced to a heap of bloody ruins. The surrounding group of savages offered no very attractive spectacle to a civilized eye. Some were cracking the huge thigh bones and devouring the marrow within. Others were cutting away pieces of the liver and other approved morsels and swallowing them on the spot with the appetite of wolves. The faces of most of them, besmeared with blood from ear to ear, looked grim and horrible enough. My friend, the white shield, proffered me a marrow bone so skillfully laid open that all the rich substance within was exposed to view at once." Unquote. Okay, now I want to call attention to the phrase within it. It says, several knives were already at work. Okay, continue on in that same sentence. These little instruments were plied with such wonderful address that the twisted sinews were cut apart. The ponderous bones fell asunder as if by magic, and in a moment the vast carcass was reduced to a heap of bloody ruins. Unquote. So this is a telling observation, of facile use of so-called little instruments, because it calls attention to the fact that often plains inhabitants used either made knives, that is, uh, uh, blades of stone or bone or, or bone or cast off iron, or trade knives, that is, knives that were bartered for from the Anglos going west. And these knives were considered a far inferior quality by design, because so they not want to give these wicked savages uh, the good stuff. So, again, these blades were considered subpar and only suitable for trade, with, again, Parkman's word, savages. Now, Parkman's account and many, many others echo his observation that much facile ability is made with blades considered not up to snuff. He witnessed skill of use that was beyond the technology of the edge in hand. This is an intellect that saw how to dice, slice, sever, dissect, an intelligence that was more about what the blade will be applied to than the technology in hand. Okay, now this is an important distinction here. It's more about what you're applying it to. Then this technology in hand. Parkman had, now keep in mind, he's just not being amazed. This is no babe in the woods getting out there and never seeing uh, a buffalo hunt in his life. He'd seen many, Parkman had seen many able long hunters, buffalo hunters, and skinners and such with their usual three-knife rig. That is belt knife, leg knife, patch knife. He'd seen these men at work. He'd seen skilled men perform the same field dressing of buffalo with so-called better tools. Those of what some would later call the Chicago way of skilled butchery still tout the ability and speed of these tribes with lesser tools. There's tons of accounts of these Lakota uh, buffalo hunts. The Comanche hunts are even more uh, speedily done with, uh, with greater, uh, with uh, uh, facile addresses, one author, author puts. it. It's astonishing. They're all going, they're amazed what's being done so quickly with uh, implements that they find fumbly and would rather not use at all. Now, what we witness with Plains knife work is akin to the complete and utter creativity and utility that was put into the buffalo itself. Almost every aspect of the buffalo was used. At the same time, that knife knew how to address the uh, issue at hand. All the more so whenever you came to warfare, knowing how to look at a human body and actually go to a dress with it. You take the resource you have, the planes knife, and find every possible manifestation of use, even with what in many cases would be considered a lesser tool. Plains knife use is less about the tool itself than it is about the pragmatic know-how of just where to insert, slice, hack, tear, approach, grip, flip, heel back, thumb down, twist, tuck, and all the other subtle ways of making full and complete use of a single knife. And so little of that use is reflective of the mono e dueling approach transported with a Toledo mind, uh, steel mindset we saw uh, later, uh, later on, as it's coming across the pond here. Necessity, creativity, and survival forged this approach. Necessity, creativity, and survival created an astonishing font of bladed wisdom. These tactics were designed to work with lesser blades, and thus they worked beautifully with our modern cutlery. So even if we'd go improvised, even if we had to pick up a ballpoint pen and uh, the uh, air, airline cabin, because we're not allowed to carry uh, a knife aboard, and that's saying if the, if the horrible contingency of something was going down, you would still be able to wield this with some sort of facility without running yourself through these long John Wickian and choreographed movements, you're going to find what is the meanness, the go of the entire thing. Now, those of us who have uh, attended uh, some of our boot camps where we do planes knife work, uh, there's an emotional, they can vouch for it, it's not something you can really get across with uh, a podcast or an article or uh, even a video the emotional content that is occurring there. I mean, yes, there is technique and tactic to it, but often it's less about that than it is about the attitude, the spirit, the ferocity of what's going on. And being able to do this with lesser material, it calls to mind to uh, Seneca's observation, quote, uh, he is the great man who uses the earthenware dishes as if they were silver, and he is equally great if he uses silver as if it were earthenware, unquote. In other words, you don't alter your tactics for what's in the hand. You're seeing what's before you, what is beyond the edge, and how to attack that. Plain's knife work is silver-plated earthenware and well worth resurrecting. Now let's continue on this little historical sojourn. Let's go south of the border, beyond the edge of material. See, knife fighting styles differ according to broad geographic regions, and we've discussed this before. Point we've already digressed upon in great length, uh, with four really broad regions. In north of the border, we have indigenous tribes wielding subpar blades with facile ability. South of the border, though, we see a rise in blade quality, but we still see the same appreciation for the what and how of where the blade is to be applied. The southern uh, south of the border uh, knife vocabulary of thrust, slice, hacks, butts, etc is mirrored by an equally deep vocabulary for what it is to be thrusted into, sliced, hacked, butted, etc. I want you to think about that. Well, most of the knife fighting we have now is everything about that blade, what you can do with it, not what is going to be applied to beyond a broad, hey, this is towards the throat, this is towards the body. This vocabulary is just as rich as to what you're entering with and how you're entering with it. Uh, some of this vocabulary is echoed uh, well into the matador tradition, well into the 1940s. A few examples, um, I forget the pronunciation, Pinchazo which is a, an effectual thrust. We have penchazo sol, uh, saltando, which is a thrust that strikes bone and falls to the ground. So in other words, they thought about every, I mean, the, I'm talking the vocales deep, deep, deep to say that it's uh, not just what you're doing, what you're applying it to, and those can alter with the down- to body parts, how the movement is going, how your hand is in relation to that body part that's moving. Uh, of course, the worst insult of all the time in this was pistola, which implies that the knife wielder is so inept that they would be better off killing with a firearm than a blade. Uh, let's go. Uh, we've been talking knives. And I said something about tomahawks up front. Let's go with that. Tomahawks and axes uh, beyond the edge material here. This beyond the edge wisdom is found in this swinging edge as well. Be that a tomahawk, a boarding axe, a broad axe, or a bottle, uh, battle axe. Now we've already belabored how any knowledgeable axe wielder worth their salt hangs their axe and tests it with a single line of twine to truly know the set. If you've uh, been exposed to our uh, material in our DVD Battle Axe Secrets available at our store extreme self protection dot com. Uh, You'll see there's so much more going on with an axe than, uh, I mean, almost anyone worth their son- Any uh, lumberjack would look at most of us and just laugh. It's just not the speed or the rate of work. Sometimes you can just look at someone, pick up an axe immediately and go, you don't know what you're doing. Or you think you know what you're doing or you're it because uh, you just you just saw it on TV. And this, this ain't it. Uh, but again, battle axe secrets for the real deep in the weeds material for there. But let's uh, move on to something that we didn't cover on that. We'll call it uh, Beyond the Edge, uh, seeing limbs. Just as earlier cultures had at least rudimentary butchery skills that allowed for basic knowledge a word of where to joint, separate, divide, and sunder a formerly living carcass, lumberjacks, woodsmen, hell, any homesteader who had to cook or keep warm knew how to see a tree. They have a thought experiment right now. Say we're, uh, we're out in the woods, uh, and uh, I've, uh, I've asked you to approach two trees to chop them both down and limb them for me, then section them for the stove. One tree is a conifer, the other is a deciduous, that is, a broadleaf tree, Would your tactics change according to the tree? Now, when I ask most people this question, you you sense a trap is up and you become, I don't know, maybe a hat maker. What are you on to here? If I hadn't asked about the tactic, most would just chop willy-nilly at both trees with no difference in approach. That same answer, though, asked of a frontier woodsman would be answered, why, of course there's a difference. You calling me a fool? And what would this differing strategy be, you might ask? Well, uh, According to these beyond the edge people who see it's more, it's not necessarily the tool, it's what's before the tool. The answer is reaction wood. See, protruding limbs require bolstering to remain in fixed position. Okay, so um, a sort of botanical engineering uh, prowess. Most limbs do not grow willow-like and sag. Most are these uh, fixed, sturdy limbs of uh, tree climbing fun, right? You can reach up and you can do a pull-up off of a tree limb. And that requires a bit of engineering to keep that thing in place because they're not attached on the other side like a rider lung. Uh, Conifers and deciduous, a.k.a. uh, broadleaf trees, use two different strategies to support limbs. There are only two ways for trees to approach this engineering feat. One, they can bolster more support wood or material above the branch that is Pulling the branch uh, upward. This is called tension wood in arbor science. Or two, they can deposit more structure beneath the branch and push it into a fixed position, and this is called compression wood. So you've got tension wood is pulling upward, or compression wood is somewhat pushing into it. Broadleaf trees use a tension wood strategy, and conifers a compression wood strategy. On our next forest walk, we can recognize these strategies in a heartbeat by noticing these slight bulges above or below branches where. Uh, they join the trunk. So our wise axe swingers and lemmers of trees do not need the extra work of cutting through thicker, more bolstered wood fibers. So when approaching a broad leaf, they see it as a blow. the branch approach, uh, which is away from the tension bulge and above the limb strategy for the conifer. I mean, this same reading of trees and limbs and tension wood is applies through hacking through a jungle, blazing a trail, reading the bulges, and swinging accurately. I mean, you see people ha- moving through the forest and hacking willy-nilly with a machete uh, to blaze a trail. These, uh, whether it was at the Cumberland uh, Trail or down to the Amazon and along the Congo River these wise people knew which sort of the species they were looking at knew which way they're going to be is it going to be a hit from a hack from above or hack from b- uh, below to cut down on the amount of work that's going to be done Now, beyond the edge, be it wielding knife, axe, hawk, or any other bladed implement, those before us, before the era of weapon tunneling, possessed many complementary skills. And I mean that complementary, not just in the sense, oh, nice job, I mean that skills that were adjunct to what's going on that allowed them to bring more to bear, more wisdom to the tool in hand. Butchering strategies are copious, wood-reading strategies equally so. The eyes that can read these terrains both... After all, uh, both of these are living tissues, the the, the animal body, the human body, the, 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 the plant body. Anyone can read these tissues better can better wield the tool in hand, be that to build a fire, to joint a deer, or to unlimb an opponent Viking style. There is far more beyond the edge than there is actually in the edge itself. Now, for more on old-school edge work, uh, see our black box volumes. We've got tons of uh, Tomahawk stuff strewn out through there. Matter of fact, our current volume uh, as of the month of May is Pirate Boarding Axe Tactics there. So that's the entire volume. That's what we're talking about. Obviously, I'd steer you towards the uh, uh, our battle axe secrets if you run more in the weeds with a much larger tool there. Uh, I would just... You know, Please have a look at our browser store, ExtremeSelfBetection.com, or, you know, like, support, share the podcast, or take a look at our blog, Indigenous Ability, where we've got, I'm talking literally thousands of pages of uh, such material. I uh, hope you enjoy this little sojourn to the past, and Arbor Science, have a good one, crew.